Our scripture lesson this morning is from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 21. Hear now the word of God from the Gospel of Luke. When some were speaking about the temple, how it was adorned with beautiful stones and gifts dedicated to God, Jesus said, as for these things that you see, the days will come when not one stone will be left upon another. All will be thrown down. They asked him, teacher, when will this be? And what will be the sign that this is about to take place? And he said, beware that you are not led astray, for many will come in my name and say, I am he, and the time is near. Do not go after them. When you hear of wars and insurrections, do not be terrified, for these things must take place first, but the end will not follow immediately. Then he said to them, nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be great earthquakes and in various places famines and plagues and there will be dreadful portents and great signs from heaven. But before all this occurs, they will arrest you and persecute you. They will hand you over to synagogues and prisons, and you will be brought before kings and governors because of my name. This will give you an opportunity to testify. So make up your minds not to prepare your defense in advance, for I will give you words and a wisdom that none of your opponents will be able to withstand or contradict. You will be betrayed even by parents and brothers, by relatives and friends, and they will put some of you to death. You will be hated by all because of my name, but not a hair of your head will perish. By your endurance, you will gain your souls. You have heard the ancient story. Nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom. There will be great earthquakes and in various places famines and plagues and there will be dreadful portents and great signs from heaven. When I was a seminary student in the late 1970s, Hal Lindsey was invited to speak one evening in our chapel. He had written a book entitled The Late Great Planet Earth, which the New York Times recognized as the best-selling non-fiction book for the decade of the 70s. Incidentally, Amazon still sells it, and much to my surprise and dismay, labels it a vintage book. <laughs> That'll make you feel old. The book was featured on a primetime television special in 1974 and again in 1975 
and reached an audience of 17 million viewers. The jacket of the book says this, the Bible has much to tell about the imminent future and this blockbuster reveals all the signs seen in today's society that foreshadow the return of Jesus Christ. The late great planet Earth is a literalist, premillennial, dispensational treatment of eschatology. Did you get that? <laughs> what that means is that it compared prophecies in the Bible to then current events in an attempt to predict what might happen in the future. The result in his thinking was that the rapture of believers would happen before the tribulation and the second coming of Christ when Jesus will return to establish his thousand year kingdom on earth. But why am I telling you this? No doubt you all have well-worn dog-eared copies of this book on your nightstands. Well, maybe not. But it's important to talk about this because among some Christians, this apocalyptic end times vision of the world is still very prevalent and very much a part of their worldview. By 1990, the book had sold over 28 million copies. One review on Amazon from March of this year said, let's face it, if it was 100 years ago, who would ever have thought that the Jews would be back in Israel? Who would have thought that Europe would be uniting under one form of government? Who would have thought Russia would be aligning with Iran? It's all happening right in front of our eyes. We all need to wake up. By the way, Hal Lindsey wrote several sequels, including Satan is Alive and Well on Planet Earth and the 1980s Countdown to Armageddon. In the Countdown to Armageddon, Lindsey predicted that the decade of the 1980s could very well be the last decade of history as we know it. He says the Bible pinpoints Israel's rebirth, Israel's rebirth as a nation as the catalyst to Judgment Day. Does that sound familiar? Some say that he went a little bit off the rails when he tried to use numerology to determine whether Jimmy Carter, Ronald Reagan, or Ted Kennedy was the Antichrist. We may all have differing opinions. By the way, thinking about how Lindsay made me wonder whether he is still with us and what he might be up to these days, I was not too surprised to find that he now has his own internet site where this week 
he is doing part 18 of a study of the book of Revelation, of course. His study series is entitled Faith for Earth's Final Hour. He's 92 years old. Do not underestimate the popularity of this interpretation, or I would say misinterpretation, of end times apocalyptic theology. You will recall that in 2017, then President Trump recognized Jerusalem as Israel's capital and moved the U.S. Embassy from, to Jerusalem from Tel Aviv in 2018. Later, at a campaign stop in Wisconsin, in 2020, when he was running for a second term, Trump said, we moved the capital of Israel to Jerusalem. That was for the evangelicals. You know, it's amazing. The evangelicals are more excited by that than the Jewish people. That's right. It's incredible. Just after Jerusalem was recognized as Israel's capital, a poll among evangelicals found that 80% of them considered that recognition of Jerusalem to be a fulfillment of prophecy. And a University of Texas political scientist who studies evangelicals estimates that a third of them this blows my mind. A third of them are likely to put Israel policy at the center of their electoral decision making. I did a Google search of Christian end times books. These are novels, not commentaries or theological journals. And I got a list of 86 books. Many of the authors listed a series of books, like Tim LaHaye's Left Behind series, 12 books. D.I. Talbot's six-book series called America's Last Days, and Clifford T. Wellman Jr.'s The Road to Revelation, a five-book series, to name just a few. And since wars and famines and pandemics are viewed as signs of the end times, no doubt there are more novels on the horizon. The word apocalyptic comes from the Greek apocalypsis, which means revelation or unveiling. The best examples are found in the Old Testament books of Joel, Amos, Zechariah, and of course, Daniel, and in the book of Revelation in the New Testament. Most of apocalyptic literature in the Bible stems from about 200 years before Christ until about 100 years after his death. Apocalyptic literature is characterized by visions and revelations by a cosmic dualism between the present evil age and optimism about the age to come 
and the idea of history moving forward towards some goal. As we talked about this summer in relation to the minor prophets, biblical prophecies may sometimes have had a view toward the future, but they certainly spoke to the present age and to what was happening in the lives of the people of Israel at the time. The same can be said for the revelation of John. During a time of intense persecution of Jesus' followers by Roman authorities, it is primarily a message about what was happening in Rome during the first century after Jesus' death. If we try to use apocalyptic literature as a guide to determine when the end times are coming, we are very likely missing the point. Jesus himself said, no one knows about that day or hour, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only God. A grandmother who reviewed the late great planet Earth put it another way. This book, she said, is not connected to the Bible at all. Save your money for something nice and enjoy it. I would recommend seeing the coal miner's daughter. When Jesus told his disciples that no one knew the day or hour, he concluded with the admonition, be on your guard and stay alert, for you do not know when the appointed time will come. Rather than pointing to signs of the end times, this is what we should all be about, being ready for our end whenever it may come, by loving God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and loving our neighbors as ourselves. May it be so. I met with our young people for Sunday school and I was trying to tell them how some people read the Bible. They've never heard end times prophecy uh, and I appreciate Dan so much giving us that uh, extra bit of understanding so I don't have to deal with that. I can tell you maybe what Jesus was trying to say to us rather than predicting the end of the world. Jesus was concerned about your soul but maybe not your soul as many have been taught to understand it. Now, I've talked with you about this issue several times, and I understand, given the language of popular religion, that my teaching may sound unconventional, even controversial, but that is never my intent. I keep telling you that I am thoroughly committed to the Bible as our significant authority it's just that so much of what I learned, have learned in my adult life is at odds with so much of what I learned in my early life. Like Dan was just telling you, what I learned in my early life. And I do not believe that's what the Bible actually teaches. But don't be surprised by this. For several thousand years, religious leaders taught that slavery was ordained of God. Religious truth just changes slowly. And it's not just religion that's slow to change. 
before the Enlightenment, all manner of superstition and alchemy passed for science, and today large swaths of our supposedly educated population do not accept the confirmed data of global climate change. Florida is literally falling into the ocean. We can watch it on TV, and some people still think it's a conspiracy. Educating seven billion people is just difficult. Knowledge transforms, but slowly. People do not like to change, and superstition is still alive and well. So what I learned as a child, many of you learned. I've learned differently in my adulthood. I learned to question dualism, making a distinction between body and soul from my friend and mentor, the late Dr. William E. Hull. Now, I learned this from Bill not when I studied with him in my doctoral program, but from his preaching at Mountain Brook Baptist Church. Now, Mountain Brook is no outpost of radical liberalism, and Bill Hull remained employed in Southern Baptist churches and universities his entire life. Bill was no radical liberal, but he was the most thorough theologian I have ever known, so I came to trust his teaching as fully biblical and deeply Christian. In short, Bill might summarize his teaching by saying, you do not have a soul, you are a soul. Your body is not a fleshly container for the real essence of you that's hidden down deep inside, as if these are two distinct parts of you. Bill taught me that this separation of body from soul, this clean distinction of body from soul, is a Greek idea. And that the Apostle Paul, who was in some ways the founder of Christianity, Paul fought Plato and Plato's notion in all of his New Testament writings. Bill reminded me that Paul was a Jew and that the Jews did not believe in dualism. When God created the man from the dust of the earth, God breathed life into that lump, lifeless lump of dirt and he became a living soul. God did not blow a soul down into the man. God gave life to that flesh, inspiriting the body with the image of God. With that divine breath, the human being became a holistic, divinely breathed, living being. Not a flesh pot with a separate soul stirring down around inside you. Now, if anybody is interested, you probably are not, but if anybody is interested, I'll give you as much time as you want to talk about this, about this non-dualistic notion, especially as it applies to the afterlife, but that's not what this is about. I think our obsession with afterlife is probably rooted in some basic inability to fully trust God. Whatever is out there beyond this life, I wholeheartedly believe we can trust to God. So what is important about our souls is not the next life. It's this life. That's why it's essential to understand that these are not distinct entities as if we could give attention to the soul as separate from hunger and thirst, or that we could attend to physical health apart from some spiritual development. Your morning jog is connected to your spirituality. Religious practice is vital to body health. We are embodied souls. They go together. They cannot be separated. 
So Jesus was concerned about your soul, but perhaps not in the way you may have thought. In, an, in another interesting text, when Jesus says, what does it profit a man, to, what does it profit a person to gain the whole world and lose their soul? This is not an altar call. Jesus wasn't preaching soul-saving evangelism. He was talking about you, the all of you. Jesus' word is appropriate today to an economy, to, to a culture soaked in economy. Looking at the Greek text, all the important words here have a financial connotation. What does someone gain if they gain the whole world? Both of those words are related to the word for profit. And that phrase, lose your soul, is also a financial term. The connotation being something like being fined or maybe like having an item repossessed. So we might translate Jesus' words there. Is there any profit for someone to make a profit and have their whole life repossessed or confiscated. So that word often translated soul, that word is often translated soul, so a lot of evangelists do turn to this text before asking you to walk the aisle and give your life to Jesus. But the word is the Greek word suke, psyche. I talked to our youth this morning about that word, psyche. This is not some ethereal Casper the friendly ghost, you know, down in your body that flies out of your body to heaven when you die. The psyche is the essence of who you are, the whole person. It's your body and more than just your body. And it's something intangible and it's the intangible linked to the tangible you. So Jesus' message is more pressing than just what happens after you die. He wants, he wants to know about the real you, the whole you here and now. Who cares how much money you have if you lose sight of the whole you, if you lose your soul? And with that understanding of soul in mind, when we come to today's text, we see that not so much has changed. We are obsessed with the next life as ancient Jews were equally distracted about the future, though they mostly understood the apocalypse to mean a return of Jewish reign, a political Messiah restoring Israel's fortunes. The theology they learned from the rabbis, the teachings all seemed to point to what was to come, to some indefinite future. And for a lot of people, as Dan has just explained to you, that's what it means today. But Jesus' advice was practical and pragmatic and realistic, not given to escaping this world, but coping very much within this world. So Jesus heard the people asking, how will we gain our souls? And Jesus says, just be faithful. Persist. Continue. Keep trying. Lo intento. Lo intento. Lo intento. Keep trying. Just live. In today's hard times and with hard times ahead, endure. He's not talking about heaven. He's talking about the whole you right here, right now. Keep trying. 
An old farmer had an old mule. The beast was stubborn and beyond his working days. And one day that old mule fell into an old dried up well. Well, the farmer studied that situation and couldn't figure out how to get the mule out of the well. He called his neighbor to come and they studied it some more. And they finally decided that trying to get the mule out of the old well was futile. The well was dry. The mule didn't work either. Might as well call it a day and just let that deep well be the mule's final resting place. So they called the farmhands and gave each one of them a shovel, and the long task of burying the mule in the old well began. But with each shovel full of dirt, the mule just shook it off and stepped up. The more dirt they threw, threw on him, the more he shook it off and stepped up. And in the end, he just shook it off and stepped out of that well and went on his old, merry, stubborn way. Jesus says, if you want to know what faith is, shake it off and step up. This morning, thinking of telling this story to the children in Spanish, I looked up the Spanish translation of, of today's text, and it says, in paciencia, in patience, we will gain our souls. Interesting word. But from the rest of Jesus' teaching and from the rest of Scripture in mind, I think we know Jesus had something more than just passive waiting. He's saying, be faithful. Do faith. Do not grow weary in doing what is right. Speak out, even when it's difficult. Come to church, even when you don't feel like it. Support justice, even if it makes you unpopular. Tithe 10%, save 10%, spend the rest with joy and thanksgiving. Live faith, don't just believe it. And you may even be able to boast in your sufferings. Because suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. You see, sometimes we have to make hope by working hard enough just to conjure it up out of the circumstances we've been given. So shake it off and step up. Keep trying. And by your endurance, you will gain your souls today. Endure today, and tomorrow will take care of itself.